The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your stop, Top 5 at 5. We begin with stocks tracking for three straight days of losses. This is a second day of testimony from Fed Chairman Jay Powell. There's very little to soothe investors' rate risk worries. Also, breaking this morning, embattled investment bank Credit Suisse, it's a late-night phone call from the SEC, forcing it to delay the release of a key report. This morning, shares are falling. Also, under pressure, crypto bank Silvergate Capital, just 24 hours after reports, it was exploring new efforts to stay afloat. The bank now says those efforts have failed. Plus, the CEO of Norfolk Southern bracing for a grilling on Capitol Hill, with lawmakers set to question him and other experts over the derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. The statement out this morning. And then later, President Biden is proposing a series of new taxes on the rich in his latest budget proposal. Raymond James's Ed Mills is here to break it down for us. It's Thursday, March 9th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning and welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's start the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a mostly lower session for stocks yesterday. We're seeing futures this morning right across the board. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down more than a half a percent. We're also checking the bond market on the heels of J-Pal on the Hill, day two. Yields right now, as you can see, um, this picture right here is what we're watching, the inverted yield curve. That has actually spread the two-year note above 5%, pretty much at levels where it hasn't been since 2007. Of course, the 10-year, the benchmark, pretty close to 4%. Those yields have been creeping up as the market weighs rate hikes. In energy, oil continues to fall from its recent high. Right now, we're continuing to see pressure on oil. Uh, WTI down fractionally, about 76 and a half bucks a barrel. Brent crude at about 82 and a half bucks a barrel. Again, both of them down fractionally. Net gas is up this morning about a percent and a half. And a very busy morning in crypto. We're seeing both Bitcoin and Ether under pressure this morning. Bitcoin down 2%, Ether down a percent and a half. Um, Cardano, the hardest hit in, on this board at least, down 2.5%. Something we're watching. We're going to have much more in this sector later on in the hour. All right. Overnight in Asia, a mixed picture that saw Australia and Japan as the lone standouts. And around the world, Europe's trading day just getting underway with red across the board. We're seeing the CAC down more than a half a percent, the FTSE down about three quarters of a percent. All right, let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Frank, good morning to you. Apple is reportedly reshuffling management of its international businesses to put a bigger focus on India. According to Bloomberg, the shift will mark the first time that Apple classifies India as its own sales region. Apple posted record revenue in India last quarter, even as its total sales slipped 5% and has created a region-specific online store and is planning to open its first retail outlets in the country later this year. Watching shares of Uber, the company reportedly exploring a possible spinoff of its freight and logistics unit as a straight sale of public offering. According to Bloomberg, Uber is discussing options with potential advisors with an IPO as the most likely outcome. 
and Northwestern University finance professor Janice Eberly, who also holds a Ph.D. from MIT, is reportedly a leading candidate for the number two job at the Federal Reserve following the departure of Lael Brainerd. According to multiple reports, the White House has been honing in on Eberly in recent days. Eberly formerly served as Treasury Secretary for Economic Policy during the Obama administration. Frank? All right, Savannah, uh, now with those headlines. Savannah, thank you very much. We'll see you later in the show. All right, turn our attention to a developing story in Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw set to testify before the Senate later this morning addressing the environmental and public health concerns from the company's train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. In a prepared testimony released ahead of that hearing, Shaw will now share how he plans to, quote, make it right, adding he is, quote, deeply sorry for the impact this derailment has had on the people of East Palestine and the surrounding communities. Shaw will also stress Norfolk Southern's commitment to financial assistance for uh, affected residents and first responders, amounting to more than $20 million in reimbursements and investments, according to the CEO. All right, turning our attention back overseas, breaking news, shares of embattled investment bank Credit Suisse under pressure this morning after a late night phone call from the SEC. Our Jeff Cutmore is covering this story from London. Jeff, good morning. What do we know? Hey, good morning to you, Frank. Well, this is just the latest in a series of stories that have once again raised questions about this group's recovery plan. Earlier this week, we heard longtime stakeholder David Hero at Harris Associates had liquidated his entire position. And now this. Effectively, the Swiss lender's statement says the SEC made a, quote, late call on the evening of March the 8th in relation to the technical assessment of previously disclosed revisions to the consolidated cash flow statements in 2019 and 2020. And as a result of that, Credit Suisse has now delayed the publication of its annual report, but says, quote, we confirm the 2022 financial results as previously released in February are not impacted. We reached out to Credit Suisse, of course, on this. They're not offering anyone up for further comment or interviews at this stage, but the markets had its say, shares opening down 3.5% and struggling here to get a bid, Frank. Yeah, they've fallen even harder than that, Jeff. Uh, Obviously, a call from the SEC, never a good thing, especially a late-night one. What kind of performance are we expecting from Credit Suisse once this report is eventually released? Well, we'll have to find out how this particular story develops, but we already know this is going to be another terrible year for the bank. They've already forecast a significant loss for full year 2023 as this restructuring program works its way through. And of course, the 2022 loss was the worst for this organization since the financial crisis of 2008. And we remember how bad that was. Yeah, we absolutely do. Jeff Cutmore, live in London. Thank you very much, Jeff. All right, turning our attention back to the broader markets, investors are clearly not happy with what they've heard so far from Fed Chair Jay Powell this week. Amid growing expectations, the Fed's fund rates may hit 6% this year. Traders now pricing in a 78% chance of a 50 basis point hike at this month's Fed meeting. But if you look even further out, there are now 35% odds rates may hit 5 and 3 quarter to 6% by July. That's according to the CME FedWatch tool. That's up from the current range of four and a half to four and three quarters percent. Powell taking great pains in his testimony yesterday to clarify the FOMC has not made up their minds just yet about the size of this month's hike. We have not made any decision about the March meeting. We're not going to do that until we see the, the additional data. The larger point, though, <clears throat> is that we're not on a preset path and that we will be guided by the incoming data and the evolving outlook. 
All right, let's discuss this further with Kate Faddis, Senior Portfolio Manager at Fernwood Investment Management. Kate, great to have you here. Thank you so much, Frank. Thank you for having me. All right, so a lot of times the market hears what it wants to hear from Jay Powell, sometimes about a pause or a pivot. This time he said very bluntly they're not going to make a decision until they see the economic reports. That's the jobs report tomorrow, also CPI coming up next week. Which one of those two is bigger in your mind? I think the data is data are confusing. And in a general sense, in my mind, we are going to have more uh, raises because the Fed seems very consistent. They do not want inflation to run away from them. They look at what happened in the 70s and any hint of bad news, they will raise. All right. We're going to get to your picks just in a bit. But first, I want to talk to you about bonds. We have everybody coming on CNBC saying, the short-term bonds are looking more and more attractive. We just talked about the two-year above 5%. How's that impacting your portfolio management and your view on bonds? Is it still 60-40 equities bonds? It's 60-40. It's going to 50-50. We have clients that are retirees that love dividends, love income. Guess what? Now they can get bonds. They can get bonds at 5%. One-year bond. I've been buying the one-year bond at 5.2%. Who knows what's going to happen? It could even go as high as 6%. So we are quite excited. I like income myself, Kate. I think that's a, that's a universal feeling like income. Um, I want to talk to you about where you're seeing opportunity in this market. One of your picks is actually in a space that we've been talking about quite a bit here on CNBC, the weight loss drug uh, sector. So tell me about your number one pick, with his, which is Novo Nordisk. Why is this stock so attractive to you right now? Novo Nordisk is very attractive. It's actually gotten a lot of press. There's been a, a lot of buzz around it. It's a Danish company, market cap $317 billion. They do have a dividend yield, $25 billion in revenue. So the bi- company has been in the business of insulin production for decades. They now have a drug for diabetes that has this beautiful, wonderful side effect, Frank, you can lose up to 20% of your body weight. And the way it works is it sort of stimulates a nerves in your stomach to tell you that you're full. So you ne- no more of this. You keep eating and an hour later, oh, my God, I'm so full. <laughs> Obesity is a disease in and of itself. Yeah. Just my to be clear, Kate, you're talking about Ozempic, correct? I'm talking about Ozempic. Okay. Uh, Ozempic, yeah, Ozempic, we go V. They're... Uh, a a whole category of drugs that were aimed for diabetes. And now we found out they can cure obesity. So they're being marketed for obesity as well. All right. Another thing we got to talk to you about your other pick. I don't want to cut you off, Kate, but we want to get to your other pick before we let you go. Uh, Ticker AEHR. It's in the semiconductor space. We talk a lot about that here on CNBC as well. Very quickly. Why is this so attractive right now? This is so attractive. What they do is they sell test equipment to test the uh, wafers. They test 100% of the wafers because these are important wafers. They go into silicon carbide chips that are used in electric vehicles and charging stations. Now, you can imagine demand for EVs and charging stations is going to grow by 50% a year for several years. Europe has mandated that by 2035, all cars have to be EVs. So the demand for this is enormous. This is what you call in the parlance, Frank, a hot one. Ten, <laughs> ten times revenue it's trading at. So this is not cheap, not for the fan of heart, but I think it's a very interesting name. 
Yeah, the EV market only growing. Kate Faddis, thank you for being here. As always, great to see you. All right, when we come back here on WEX, shares of crypto bank Silvergate sinking as efforts to shore up capital fall flat. We have the fallout ahead. Plus, a first on CNBC interview with MasterCard and the release of its monthly consumer spending pulse report. You don't want to miss this one. We speak with its chief economist, Michelle Meyer. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet. Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. All right, welcome back to Wax, a developing story this morning in shares of crypto bank Silvergate Capital, sinking ahead of the open, as you can see, down 43%. Um, this, despite reports yesterday, was working with regulators to shore up capital and find new investors. The bank overnight says it now plans to wind down operations and liquidate. CNBC tech reporter Mackenzie Sagalas joins us now. Matt, great to see you, especially with a story like this with so many twists and turns. So what are we looking at here? Hey, Frank. So what we're looking at is a voluntary liquidation. Silvergate says that all bank deposits will be fully repaid. The company did not say how it plans to resolve claims against its business, but it did refer to the overall process as a, quote, orderly wind down of bank operations. The liquidation comes less than a week after Silvergate discontinued its popular real-time payments platform known as the Silvergate Exchange Network. Now, that was considered to be one of its core offerings. Silvergate did add that all other deposit-related services remain operational as the bank shuts down. This is really the culmination of months of major setbacks for the company, whose stock is down more than 95 percent over the past year. And just last week, Silvergate delayed its annual 10K filing, citing multiple headwinds, including an investigation underway now by the DOJ in relation to its dealings with FTX, a former customer that's, of course, now bankrupt and facing criminal fraud allegations in the last few days, Frank, a lot of Silvergate's big-name customers have jumped ship. Coinbase, Galaxy Digital, Gemini, Circle, Crypto.com, and Paxos, among others. Yeah, so a lot of issues there. We've known those issues have existed at Silvergate for quite a bit. Just how significant is it that the banks actually folded, and should investors worry about any ripple effects in the crypto uh, area at all? Yeah, so this is a major blow to an already distressed crypto industry. For almost a decade, Silvergate, a traditional federally insured lender, was one of the key gateways connecting crypto exchanges and firms to mainstream banking. And while it did build a big part of its business on letting volatile crypto companies bank with it, it also invested in safer bets like treasuries. So now that it's collapsed, some folks in the crypto industry are worried. Gaining access to the traditional banking system has always been problematic for crypto companies. You have the Wall Street Journal reporting that the firms behind Tether apparently falsified documents and used shelled companies just to open bank accounts. 
Silvergate Folding is very likely going to put even more of a microscope on banks that work with crypto companies. You've got Signature, which is another crypto-focused bank that's actually much larger than Silvergate with $114 billion in assets compared to Silvergate's $11 billion. But its stock is also under heavy selling pressure this morning, and shares are down more than 60% this year. So the market may be handicapping another collapse. So we're looking at the stocks right now. How's all this impacting the price of the crypto assets themselves? So Bitcoin, Ether, and other major crypto coins are all under pressure this morning. Singling out the volatile moves in Bitcoin specifically, it's now below that $22,000 threshold and down more than 7% this week. And just getting word this morning, Frank, that transfer volume denominated in Bitcoin is down 35 percent over the past 24 hours, with total transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain down 17 percent in the same time. Also watching crypto companies outside of the banks. So you've got Coinbase, MicroStrategy and Riot platforms all falling ahead of the open. So some troubling signals here, Frank. Wow. A lot going on there, Matt. Just looking at some of those charts. Mackenzie Sagalos, great stuff as always. Thanks for being on. Thanks, Frank. All right, ahead here on WEX, breaking down the Biden budget proposal and what it means for Wall Street. Raymond James's Ed Mills is here to break it all down. We are back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to WEX. It's time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. We start off with shares of MongoDB falling Almost 12 percent, despite a fourth quarter top and bottom line beat. The open source data platform providing uh, weak revenue guidance for the current quarter, saying long term growth opportunities may be impacted until economic conditions normalize. Uh, Again, shares down more than 11 and a half percent, almost 12 percent. Eli Lilly says it will halt development of an Alzheimer's treatment uh, after it failed to show to slow disease progression in more than 1000 participants in a clinical trial. The shutdown is a very serious blow for efforts to treat Alzheimer's in people who are in the very early stages of the disease and have not yet shown clinical symptoms. Uh, Shares of Silicon Valley Bank are sinking this morning. Uh, The bank unveiling a new $2.25 billion share sale uh, to shore up its capital. This after suffering sizable losses in its treasuries and mortgage-backed securities portfolio due to rising interest rates and cash crunches at several startups it helped to finance. Shares are down 27% this morning. I was going to check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera in New York with the very latest. Good morning, Francis. Frank, good morning. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been hospitalized after suffering a fall. A spokesman for McConnell says the veteran Republican tripped during a private dinner at a hotel in Washington, D.C. last night and that he is receiving treatment. Right now, there are no further details on the condition of the 81-year-old senator. The Senate has passed a resolution to overturn criminal law changes that were passed by the Washington, D.C. Council. The district had adopted changes last year to remove most mandatory minimum sentences and lower mandatory maximum penalties. The disapproval measure now goes to President Biden's desk, and he said he will sign it. This would mark the first time in more than three decades that Congress has nullified the capital city's laws through this process. Democratic Mayor Muriel Bowser vetoed it, but her veto was overridden. 
leaping into adventure. One grandma celebrated her upcoming 95th birthday by jumping out of a plane. Marge Bordensky from New Jersey went skydiving in Hawaii with her granddaughter and has developed a reputation as a daredevil. She's gone zip lining and hang gliding in her 80s after her husband passed. She wants to go diving again, skydiving again, this time with her nieces and nephews. So more adventures to come. I say we're all turning 80 when we grow up, just like she she is. May we all be like her, Frank. Young at heart, certainly. I'm not jumping out Mm -hmm. of any airplanes, Francis. It's (laughs) never going to happen. Francis, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. All right, straight ahead. Why scripted matches are not stopping the WWE from wanting to throw its hat into the wagering ring and maybe throw down with the likes of DraftKings and FanDuel. You're going to have to see this story. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Wex, we'll be right back. Stay with us. It is right around 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and we're just getting started here on Wex. Here's what's still on deck. Higher rates for longer from the Fed seeming more likely following a fresh batch of hot employment data. Futures facing some pressure this morning. The CEO of Norfolk Southern set to get grilled on Capitol Hill over a series of train derailments in Ohio. New details on the hurdles preventing similar accidents from happening again. And checking the pulse of the consumer. MasterCard out with new numbers on the strength of spending. You're going to see it first right here on CNBC. It is Thursday, March 9th, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange. All right, welcome back to WEX. I'm Frank Collins. Pick up the half an hour with where markets are stacking up this morning. As we mentioned just a moment ago, futures right now, they are under pressure across the board. The Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down more than a half a percent. We're also watching the bond market on the heels of Jay Powell on the Hill day two. We're seeing yields are elevated to your note above 5%, as we've been mentioning. That's about the level it hasn't been since 2007. The 10-year note, the benchmark here, almost at 4%. Inverted yield curve continues. That spread has actually been widening um, as investors continue to worry about those rate hikes. We're also watching energy also impacted by those rate hikes and worries about uh, a decrease in demand. We're seeing it fall from recent highs. Right now, oil doing a bit of a turnaround this morning, up fractionally for WTI about 76, almost 77 bucks a barrel. Brent crude at 82 bucks a barrel, also up fractionally. Natural gas also rising up one and three quarters of a percent. All right. We also want to pay attention to earnings today. And we're keeping an eye on shares of Oracle. It's out with results after the bell. Forecasts see revenue growth of 18 percent with EPS growth of 6 percent. So shares are underperforming year to date, but they're actually outperforming since Salesforce reported its earnings last week, showing some surprising strength in demand. Both Jefferies and Barclays are out with notes yesterday forecasting a strong quarter. Cloud revenues forecast increased by 15 percent. On-premise revenues, a forecast increased by roughly 8%. So you're looking at the numbers right here. Jeffrey's actually saying that on-premise business could have seen a near-term benefit from a slowdown in the transition to cloud. Oracle also offers AI for cloud. Last quarter, before all the chat GPT hype, Chairman Larry Ellison and CEO Safra Katz, they were touting the companies, including NVIDIA, coming to Oracle Cloud to maximize their AI capabilities. Investors will be listening very closely for any additional commentary in that area. All right, let's get a check on this morning's top stories. Our Silvana now is back with those. Hey, Silvana. Hey, Frank. Well, J.P. Morgan is suing its former private banking head, Jess Staley, in a lawsuit filed in Manhattan federal court last night. The bank is accusing Staley of entangling it with sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, saying Staley himself had been accused of sexual assault. 
Staley has said he was friendly with Epstein, but never knew about his alleged crimes. This comes as J.P. Morgan itself is defending against other lawsuits by the U.S. Virgin Islands and an unnamed woman who says J.P. Morgan aided in Epstein's sex trafficking by keeping him as a client. Federal safety regulators are initiating a new investigation into a recent fatal collision involving a Tesla. CNBC has learned the Model S collided with a fire truck in Walnut Creek, California last month. Both the National Highway, Safe, Highway Traffic Safety Administration and California High Patrol have opened separate probes into the matter. And betting on the WWE may soon be a thing. Sources telling CNBC the company is in talks with gambling regulators in Colorado and Michigan to legalize betting on high-profile matches. WWE is working with the accounting firm EY to secure scripted match results in hopes it will convince regulators there's no chance of results leaking to the public. A company spokesperson declined to comment to CNBC, Frank. I know some fans will be very excited about that. I'm a big wrestling fan. I just can't figure this out. We know it's fixed. Why would right. you bet I on know. it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we'll talk about that after the show. Yeah. I'm going to have to turn my wheels on this for a while. All so right, Vanna, we'll think about it. Thank you very much. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All right, Fed Chair Jay Powell making it clear during his two-day testimony on Capitol Hill that the central bank is prepared to react to recent signs of economic strength by raising interest rates higher than previously expected. Among this year's string of red-hot data, strong retail sales jumping 3% in January as the resilient American consumer continues to spend despite fears of an economic downturn. And new this morning, MasterCard spending pulls out with a new read on the consumer showing spending may not be going away anytime soon. In a first on CNBC interview, I'm joined by Michelle Meyer. She's the North American Chief Economist at MasterCard. Michelle, thank you very much for being here. Of course. Thank you, Frank. All right. So thank you for this report. You're going to see it first here on CNBC from MasterCard. Um, it shows retail sales up 6%, 6.9% year over year, basically 7% in February. What does that say about the state of the consumer? Look, I think there's a lot of uncertainty about how the data was going to come in in February after such extraordinary gains in January across a variety of different economic indicators. And what we're seeing in the spending poll stat is that the consumer is still out there spending. Um, seven, almost 7% year-over-year growth in nominal basis is pretty steady um, spending growth for the part of the consumer, which shows that the consumer has purchasing power, and that's supported by the health and the labor market. So one thing that's not included in that 7% number are uh, airlines and lodging, hotels, et cetera. Um, even more strength when it came to those. Airline um, sales up 15.5% year over year, lodging up more than 42% year over year. What yeah. does that tell us about you know, the American consumers, not only what they have to spend, but their willingness to spend on credit? Well, that is an excellent point, right? When you think about that retail X auto, which is equivalent to the Census Bureau, that's just part of the consumer basket. And if you take into experience-based spending, so lodging, air travel, et cetera, um, you're seeing a much stronger um, consumer out there that is absolutely prioritizing their spend on experiences. So it is a consumer that's been able to make choices um, and where there's pent-up demand still in experience-based spending, um, these numbers are impressive. So, but is this on credit or consumers, do they have the cash to still spend? I mean, where's this money coming from? When I see a, a 42, almost 43% jump in hotel stays and yeah. a 15.5% jump in airlines, I mean, yeah. these are high-ticket items. 
Well, they are. So there's a few considerations. One is that there's some rotation of the consumer basket. Consumers are spending more on those items. They're spending less on others. So if you look at things like furniture spending um, or some of these big durable goods, there you are seeing contractions. So there's a certain amount of reallocation of their basket that's important to keep in mind. The other point around the purchasing power, the sources of spend, there's three. There's income, there's savings, there's credit, and they are all being utilized. You know, savings and credit have been important kind of buffers or shock absorbers in order for the consumer to be able to spend sometimes in excess of income growth, depending on, you know, the rate of inflation or, or, or what their basket looks like. All right. I know today's report is really focused on consumer spending, but I do want to ask you some of the volatility we see in the stock market and also the increase in rates. When does that hit this incredibly resilient consumer? Is there a certain breaking point when it comes to auto loans that may cause people to spend less, when it comes to mortgages that may cause people to spend less? So that is a question I get all the time. People are really trying to figure this out, including in the Federal Reserve, in terms of like, <laughs> what's the amount of financial conditions tightening that we would see to really have a break in the economy or have a shift in the economy, particularly the consumer. And the reality is that there's not a magic number. The Fed is going to see it when they know it, when they start to see that transmission of policy into the economy. And it's happening to some extent in some sectors, right? Look at the housing market. Home sales fell throughout all of last year. There was a bit of a rebound last month as interest rates came down, but we'll see what happens now that interest rates are rising again. So there's that clear sensitivity in the interest-sensitive sectors. Um, But no, it's not bleeding broadly into the economy yet. And that's what we heard from Fair Chair Powell the last two days, is that they're going to continue to work to tighten financial conditions until they see that broader transmission, which means that they're on the path to price stability of 2%. All right. Certainly something to watch. Michelle Meyer, North American Chief Economist for MasterCard. We appreciate you being here. I'm going to call you friend of the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Frank. Back right. at you. Coming up here on WEX, the CEO of Norfolk Southern set to get grilled on Capitol Hill over a series of train derailments in Ohio. New details on the hurdles in preventing similar accidents from happening again. Worldwide Exchange, back in a moment. All right. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. A developing story this morning, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw will testify before the Senate this morning addressing the environmental and public health concerns from the company's train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. In a prepared testimony released ahead of that hearing, Shaw will share how he plans to, quote, make it right, adding he is, quote, deeply sorry for the impact this derailment has had on the people of East Palestine and surrounding communities. Shaw will also stress Norfolk Southern's commitment to financial assistance for affected residents and first responders amounting to more than $20 million in reimbursements and investments. But amid calls for rail reform and efforts to improve train safety, one of Norfolk Southern's biggest unions is already sounding the alarm. CNBC senior editor Lorianne LaRocco joins us now. Lorianne? Uh, Good morning, Frank. The Association of American Railroads are announcing several new safety measures for freight rails in the wake of Norfolk Southern's derailments. But a key union that will be handling the installation of these measures says it lacks the workers needed to get the job done. Michael Baldwin, president of the Brotherhood of Railway Signalmen, told me their construction workforce, which would be responsible for installing these measures, is only staffed at 40 percent. Among the new measures are the installation of approximately 1,000 new heat box detectors. Those devices can potentially catch overheated bearings on a train, which are believed to have played a role in the East Palestine derailment. Baldwin said Norfolk also needs to rehire the specialists who oversee these hotbox detectors. 
For example, three years ago, there were five of these specialists that worked on the line, which included East Palestine. Today, there are zero. In a statement to CNBC, a Norfolk spokesman said the company regularly evaluates personal needs and, quote, Norfolk Southern has hired and trained more than 150 new signal employees, and we continue to hire. We are committed to the safety and integrity of our defect detectors. Crew size, as you know, is a subject of congressional scrutiny. All this comes just hours before Alan Shaw's testimony. Frank? So, Lorianne, safety spending by Norfolk Southern has also come under scrutiny since the derailments. Exactly, it has. And according to industry analysis, Railroad has cut its per-mile spending on train inspections by an average of 8%. That's a year from 2017 to 2021. And spending on repairing and maintaining freight cars and locomotives has also fell. Now, compared to the other railroads, this cut is larger. And according to exclusive data from Everstream Analytics, the tra- trend of derailments are up, way up, from 2021 and 2022. All right, Lorena LaRocco, thank you very much. Turn our attention to President Biden as he prepares to release his latest budget request to Congress. A key piece of that budget, higher taxes on wealthy Americans in part to help fund Medicare for at least the next 25 years. The president also looking to propose a minimum tax on billionaires, reduce the deficit by nearly $3 trillion over the next decade, and scrap federal tax subsidies for oil and gas companies. For more on the president's budget wish list and what may actually make it through, let's bring in Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst at Raymond James. Ed, great to have you here. Morning, Frank. All right, so let's just start off with that tax on people making over 400000 the billionaire's tax. Um, does that have a chance of passing in this Congress? Frank, did you say a billionaire is over 400,000? I'm just joking. uh, You know, so what we'll hear from folks in D.C. today is that the president proposes, Congress disposes. And most of this here should really just be viewed as a political document. This is all about the debt limit. This is all about the 2024 presidential election. What the president wants out of this budget proposal is the headline that he is committed to shrinking the federal deficit by $3 trillion over 10 years, going on the offensive, saying that he and congressional Democrats are willing to have a fiscal conversation. What is the budget proposal from Republicans and how do we deal with the deficit long term? in the debt limit near term. All right. You, you know, Ed, you're jumping ahead of me, but obviously this is a big thing. Let's talk about that. The debt limit negotiations. Um, it's coming up this summer. How important is it to get this deal done? And obviously we all know this impacts the credit worthiness of the United States. Oh, it's probably the biggest thing out of D.C. this year. Um, the ultimate goal here is from the White House to not have some of the spending cuts that Republicans have highlighted. Republicans won't want to have any of the increases of taxes that are being proposed here. Um, I do think this is something that obviously goes to the brink. What I'm advising clients at Raymond James is, is there a third path here? It doesn't seem as if we can kind of break through that logjam of spending cuts versus tax increases. Are there other ways in which we can increase revenues for the federal government? There's a lot of desire to do something on permanent reform uh, with energy getting more in an all-the-above energy strategy from congressional Republicans. Is that a way out here? I do think we will raise the debt limit, but I don't think it's not without landmines, pitfalls, and a real market reaction if we get too close to that X date. 
So, I mean, I think everybody expects some type of deal to happen. But how big of a political football is this? You mentioned the 2024 election and other issues that just come down to politics as opposed to government. How big of a political football issue is this debt ceiling negotiation? It's huge because I think Republicans want to run on the idea that there has been a fiscal explosion over the last three years. Uh, Democrats will highlight that started uh, under the Trump administration, started with the Trump tax cuts. But the reality is, is that over the last five years, there's either been tax cuts or new spending totaling more than $10 trillion uh, above trend. When we go out, our current debt goes from $30 trillion to $50 trillion over the next 10 years, unless something happens. Uh, Republicans think that this is their way of capturing the White House, keeping control of the House, capturing the Senate. If they bring home a message that they are the ones who are fiscally responsible, Democrats will want to paint Republicans as those who want to cut really good programs that have support from a lot of uh, voters. And so this is a battle setting up for the election in 2024. Who wins that battle probably wins the election. Yeah, early stages of that battle for sure. One last thing I want to touch on. Uh, President Biden hoping to end tax breaks for fossil fuels, the oil industry, but also crypto and private equity. Yeah, Frank, I mean, these are kind of provisions that have been in the budget for a while. Um, It is easy for the Biden administration to say, what is an unpopular industry? And let's add extra taxes on that. These are messaging documents. Um, It was really important to look at the last two years where Democrats had full control of Congress, full control of the White House, and were not able to increase taxes. The next time we really have to think about taxes is in 2025 when those Trump era tax cuts expire. And that's why so much of this really is a play on the election. All right. Ed Mills with the latest on down what's going on down in D.C. Ed Mills, appreciate you being here. All right. As we had to break here on WAX throughout the month of March, we're celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Farm Girl Flowers founder and CEO, Christina Stemple. It's no secret that it's really hard to raise money as a female entrepreneur. And sometimes you think that that's the only course that you can go. But I grew Farm Girl Flowers by bootstrapping it from my dining room table. And it is sometimes the wisest option, I think, because it's offered so many positives. Um, I get to make the right decisions for my team and customers and not just for a quarterly statement. So I want everyone to know that it's actually a badge of honor. It's not a bad word to say that you're bootstrapping your company. And uh, I wear it proudly. All right, welcome back. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Six stories you may have missed as we close in on the 6 o'clock hour. Embattled investment bank Credit Suisse says it will delay the release of its annual 2022 report following a late-night call from the SEC concerning revisions it made to its cash flow statements in 2019 and in 2020. Apple is reportedly reshuffling management of its international businesses to put a bigger focus on India. According to, the, according to Bloomberg, the shift will make it the first time that Apple classifies India as its own sales region. Reports this morning, Northwestern University professor and senior associate dean Janice Eberly is the frontrunner for the number two job at the Federal Reserve following the departure of Lael Brainerd. Shares of Silicon Valley Bank are sinking this morning after unveiling a $2.2 billion share sale to shore up its capital base after suffering large portfolio losses related to treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. 
Also under heavy selling pressure, crypto bank Silvergate Capital, which says it will be liquidating and winding down its operations while still planning full repayment of all deposits. And Chinese online fashion retailer Xi'an is reportedly set to raise about $2 billion in new funding this morning, uh, this month, excuse me, with eyes on a potential U.S. public offering later this year. All right, gearing up for the trading day ahead, we get weekly initial jobless claims this morning, along with a fresh batch of earnings from BJ's Wholesale, Oracle After the Bell, and Ulta Beauty, among others, and GE kicking off its investor day at 7.30 a.m., its first annual meeting since spinning off GE Healthcare at the beginning of this year. Those jobless claims, the final piece of employment data ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report. For more on that in the trading day ahead, let's bring in Patrick Palfrey, co-head of quantitative research and senior equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Patrick, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. So we were just looking at uh, some of the data coming out today. Obviously, the jobs report tomorrow. Futures mm-hmm. under pressure this morning following j Powell on the Hill for two days. Just give us your sense. What do you make of all this? Well, I I think the Fed is trying to be almost painfully clear in their messaging. Uh, They need to slow down the pace of inflation. And in order to do that, they are going to need to be more aggressive, whether that is a prolonged experience with higher interest rates or whether that is. And and I think there will be uh, continued rate hikes past what we had previously expected. Both of those options are on the table, and equities need to adjust to the reality of, of higher rates and for longer. And that's what we're seeing here as, as stocks continue to, to soften up here on these messaging. All right. So I want to ask you about the future being under pressure more specifically. I mean, Jay Powell said they're not making any decisions until they see the data. We have two data points coming out, jobs report tomorrow, CPI next week. Why are the markets already under pressure when we don't actually know? Can we take him at his word or are the markets doubting what he's saying? They believe that that 50, boys, 50 basis point hike is going to happen no matter what. Well, I think we need to take him at his word. I mean, throughout this entire process, starting really, you know, almost 18 months ago, uh, the, the Fed has been painfully clear in charting this path forward in a more aggressive manner. And they've really held true to that path early on, going with the 75 basis point moves, and then subsequently slowing as we've gotten further along. And the honest truth is we're, we're closer to the end than the start. And that's why there's this hope every single time uh, that there will be a Fed pivot. Uh, but Jay Powell ultimately has to re-intervene and, and re-emphasize the fact that inflation is first and foremost the, the primary focus for them. So he, he is being clear. And, and I think equities are continuing to look for the hope that we're going to get the pivot. But in reality, inflation is, is showing no signs of slowing down, particularly with how tight the labor market is. And that's really what's underpinning their decision here. All right. So we're seeing the worst earnings season since all the way back in the great financial crisis. A lot of investors are turning their attention to bonds in the two-year note. Jeff Gunlock out yesterday saying he doesn't believe the top is in on that two-year note that's already crossed a 5% yield. What's your take on the investability? We're showing the quote right here. What does that, what does that take tell you about the investability of equities right now and the attractiveness of bonds? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're asking an equity guy whether we should buy equities. And the, the honest fact of the matter is, if I look out over the next couple of years, the economic backdrop is only going to really allow for an earnings or EPS growth uh, of, of really low single digits. And I'm talking, you know, three to four percent. That's a very difficult environment for equities to work. So that's your baseline. That's before we see multiples either expand or contract. So if you're looking at short term rates at around five percent, against a profit growth backdrop that is equal to that or under that, uh, I I think the opportunity for bonds looks really good here. And it's not to say there's not areas in equities that work. And I I think you need to be selective. And we would encourage investors to look more towards growth. But, you know, take it on the surface. It's it's the time for interest rates or, or bonds to really shine here. 
So, uh, uh, number one, I thought you said it was going to be like a shoe salesman shoe thing. You're actually <laughs> bullish on bonds. So you you kind of threw me off right there for a second. Um, I do want to get back to equities. I want to get to your S&P 500 price target. Your price target's at 4050. We're just below 4000 right now. So you're not seeing any growth when it comes to equities for the rest of the year? Well, I think what we've experienced since October is a market that's run you know, over 10%. Now, we've pulled back most really since the beginning of February. Our expectation was that was going to really carry us through the first half of the year. And we got that uh, really in the first couple months. So I, I think the backdrop for profits remains impaired. Uh, I think the backdrop ultimately for, for equities to move higher is, is a difficult environment because it comes down to multiple expansion here. And to be honest, I mean, we're just having a conversation about whether the Fed's going to raise rates. Higher rates makes it more difficult for stock multiples to expand. The cost of capital goes up and it's incrementally negative for PE. So if you're not getting the profit growth, it's hard to see multiples expanding. The, the, the target is kind of really flat-ish from here. All right, we're going to leave it on one last word. What sector do you see as the most attractive, at least for this last month of the first quarter, knowing that we're seeing uh, the Fed meeting at the end of the month um, and possibly a rate hike of either 25 or 50 basis points? Look, I, I think right now is an area for investors to continue to focus on secular growth uh, sectors. I, I would say, I mean, you have it up there, technology. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is it's too early to get defensive because we don't see a recession on the horizon. And we're, we're still a little... Uh, gun shy on, on going full and on cyclicals. So, so I, I would encourage people to look at the secular growth areas of the market. All right, Patrick Palfrey, we've got to leave the conversation there. Thank you for being here. All right, before we send it over to Squawk Box, some upgrades and downgrades to bring you right now. Oppenheimer raising its price target on Meta from $220 per share to $235. It cites in part higher advertising estimates as artificial intelligence investments are beginning to drive improved targeting. And Evercore's Mark Mahaney this morning naming Meta one of its top picks and UBS initiating coverage of Marathon Petroleum, giving it a buy rating and a price target of 160 bucks a share. It notes, however, the past two years, Marathon has paid out more than $19 billion to shareholders, the highest among independent refiners. One last look at the futures right now. As we've mentioned, they've been under pressure all morning long. We're looking right now. If the markets were to open up right now, the Dow would be fractionally lower than NASDAQ, the hardest hit at this time. Certainly something to watch. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box, coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.